Well, good morning, friends. Join me in Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs halfway through your Bible. You can just open it right up and you'll probably be very close to the right place. Proverbs 28.5. Just going to read one verse and then pray for us as we get started here in this part of our gathering. Evil people don't understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand everything. Evil people don't understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand everything. Pray with me. Father, we enter this moment as we do, or as we have, almost every Sunday for the last year, lamenting the state of our world, the tragedy of this pandemic, the distance that we have to keep. And so, God, we uh, beg, we contend for you to move and to heal and to bring an end to this pandemic. Father, we long for the moment where we can be together again. We look forward to that. We anticipate that here, hopefully sooner than later. But for now, for today, for this time that we have, as we open the scriptures, as we look at this weird, mysterious book called Proverbs, would you take all the things we bring into this time, our joys and fears, wins and losses, would you hold all of that so that we can be free, open to hear your voice? God, would you speak to us today? And may we respond in whatever ways that we need to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. I want to begin with a picture and a question. This picture is going to be a mental picture. I just want you to go somewhere in your mind with me. I want you to go with me to Yosemite, right? the great national park here in our state of California. I want you to go with me to Yosemite, to Half Dome, to the top of Half Dome, looking out over the majestic Yosemite Valley. If you've never been there, I would even encourage you to, to pause, to Google it, just to get a sense of it. It's such a cool place. I've had the opportunity to hike to the top of Half Dome a few times now, but my favorite experience was hiking it in the middle of the night so that my friends and I could be at the top when the sun rose early in the morning. I did that when I was in college with some friends, we had a great time. As you do in college, there were shenanigans and laughing and, and just a, a really fun couple of hours making our way up to the top of Half Dome. And when we got up there, it turns out that there was a dozen or so other people who had the same idea. So there's about 20 of us standing on top of Half Dome for 30 minutes in the dark, waiting for the sun to come up. This sense of relief, you know, some cheering, excitement about having made it all the way to the top. But then there's this moment where the dawn breaks, the first sunlight starts to, to break through and you begin to see these shafts of light coming into the valley. And as soon as that moment happened, that place went silent. Not a word was being said as we stood basking in the beauty, the awe, the wonder of what we were seeing of what we were witness to, the fullness 
the weightiness of what was happening, the only appropriate response was just to be silent. Now, a question. Very early in the Jesus story, there are some people kind of creeping on Jesus a little bit, some would-be followers who are checking him out. Jesus turns around and he asks them this question, what do you want? This is in John's gospel in the first chapter. It's actually the first words that Jesus speaks, the first question that he asks in John's telling of the Jesus story. What do you want? Such a great question, a question that cuts right through the noise, that gets down into the depths of reality, to the thing behind the thing. Why are you here? What are you looking for? What do you desire? This is a spiritual question. What do you want? Because desire ultimately takes us to ultimate things. Desire ultimately takes us to ultimate things. Now, this is always an important question. I think it's especially important in our moment right now as we are in this muddled state a year into pandemic life. Most of us just want to go to the grocery store without a mask on. And, and a lot of us just haven't had the time and the space to even sit with this question. But let me ask it to you right now. What do you really want? What is it that you desire? Now today we begin this new conversation that we're calling wisdom. We're going to look at some of the texts that form the wisdom tradition of Scripture. Wisdom literature understands, underscores, goes right into this issue of desire. Because when we're talking about desire, it ultimately takes us to ultimate things. Now, desire is often represented in these writings using different metaphors. One of the most popular is the metaphor of the heart. And of course, the heart is not the organ that's beating in your chest. This is a, a, a reference to who you really are, your core, your essence. Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 27, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Jesus echoes this when he says in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart, the deep parts of who you really are. And this question, what do you want? It gets us into those spaces. My question for you as we begin this conversation is, as you think about that question, what do you want? Where does wisdom rank for you? Is wisdom a desire? Do you treasure wisdom, growing in wisdom, attaining wisdom? Is it even on your radar? Now, here's some good news for us. What scripture shows over and over again is that if you pursue wisdom, you will find it. You can gain it, discover it, grow in it simply by seeking it. And so we begin with this great statement in the book of Proverbs, so blunt in some ways. Proverbs 4, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. 
Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. In other words, whatever it takes, pursue this. Go for it. Move towards it. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Now, we're going to spend nine weeks in this conversation, and it's going to extend into our groups as well. So there's going to be a lot for us to get to. Today, I want to just give an overview, sort of frame the conversation for us. There are two really big objectives in this, in this quest for us to grow in wisdom. The first objective is this. We're just going to introduce you to some of the wisdom literature that is in the Bible. We're going to get a taste of three different books, Proverbs, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. Not going to be comprehensive look at any of those books, but will give us, again, sort of a wedding of the appetite for the wisdom literature contained in Scripture. Now, the second objective and the reason why we've chosen these particular books is because we also want to introduce you to this idea of stages of spiritual development. This concept that there are stages on our spiritual journey. And this can be very helpful for us at an individual level. It can be quite freeing to be given some language to identify, oh yeah, that's where I am right now. I think it's also very helpful on a communal level because it, that understanding can allow us to be more gracious to one, to one another, especially towards those who may not be at the same place on their journey. Now, we're going to go into more depth on this here in the coming weeks, but for today, let me just introduce the model that we are using. We're using a very simple model. There are more uh, complex and nuanced models out there for sure, but this, again, is, I think, really helpful just as an introduction. So the model looks like this. It's a three-stage process of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And this is a cycle that may repeat for us a few times in our life, in our journey with Jesus, learning to follow and live in his ways as his disciple. Let me just briefly explain each stage. In orientation, there's a new direction. There's a freshness and a clarity, often accompanied with a strong sense of right and wrong, good actions and bad actions. There's a system that works and makes sense. Proverbs gives us some language for the stage that we're calling orientation. But then comes disorientation. This moment where the system stops working, where you've been doing all the right things, but life still falls apart. And so you're left with this question, well, what now? For many of us, this happens. We end up here because of inexplicable or tragic events. There might be a lot of us who are here right now because of the events of the last year. Lamentations gives us good language for this stage of disorientation. And then there's the final stage, reorientation, where at some point we find healing. We find something new, a new vision for life, a more expansive and gracious holding of the paradoxes of the universe that we live in, the light and the shadow. And Ecclesiastes gives us good language for this stage called reorientation. And as I said, we may move through this a few times in our journey with Jesus. Now, we're going to get more into orientation here in a couple of weeks, but for the rest of our time today, I want to get into 
uh, or, or, or just start scratching the surface of this great book called Proverbs. Now, when a lot of people start reading the Bible for the first time, Proverbs is a very common place to begin. It has 31 very readable chapters. And so if you just read one chapter a day, you can get through the whole book in about a month. And it can feel easy because Proverbs is full of all these kind of short, pithy sayings. There's a lot of practical advice. There's compelling metaphors. And there's even a bit of humor. Proverbs 27. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. All the non-morning people said amen. (laughs) A lot of straightforward advice, gold in this book. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Perhaps you've heard that one before. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. We love these kinds of proverbs. We put them in picture frames. We hang them on our walls. There are, however, other proverbs that are weird and confusing. Blows and wounds scrub away evil. Beatings purge the inmost being. That's kind of weird, right? Is this like, are we supposed to start a Christian fight club? (laughs) My favorite weird proverb uh, comes in chapter 26. 26 verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will become just like him. That makes a lot of sense, right? Don't engage with fools. You might get dragged down to their level. But then the very next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. What do we do with that? Do we answer fools or do we not answer fools? How do we make sense of these apparent contradictions within the book of Proverbs? Now, anytime we look at a a piece of scripture, a book within the larger canon of scripture, it's always important to consider the genre. And the genre of Proverbs is, are, are what are called wisdom sayings. And these are common to uh, really every culture throughout human history has had its set of wisdom sayings. Other ancient Near Eastern cultures had very similar books to the book of Proverbs that we have in our Bibles. We have these uh, statements in 21st century America as well. Things like this. You probably heard this. Two heads are better than one. Many hands make light work. Classic, right? But then we also say stuff like this. Too many cooks spoil the stew. So what is it? Too many cooks or many hands make light work. Engage with fools. Don't engage with fools. Wisdom sayings. Wisdom sayings are not universals. Now this might freak some of us out, because we believe that everything in the Bible is true. And it is true, but it is true within context. It's true with discernment. It's important to say this up front. The Proverbs are not a one-size-fit-all statement of truth. They are observations about life from a particular perspective and circumstance. And they do have a lot to teach us. They have a lot to teach us, but that doesn't mean they apply to every situation, every single time. And so the book of Proverbs itself is a great example of how we handle the whole of Scripture, which is with careful 
discernment. And in particular, we need to be careful about how we use the Proverbs because a lot of spiritual abuse results from plopping down a verse, especially a proverb, and saying, see, this is how it's supposed to go. So genre is important. And then the other thing that's important here is perspective. Now, in the Old Testament, we're typically reading from one of four perspectives. We have the perspective of storytellers. When we as a community went through the book of 1 Samuel last year, this is who we were listening to, the storyteller weaving this tale of David becoming Israel's greatest king. So we have storytellers, and then we have the perspective of priests. Priests give us God's laws, God's instructions. And we see this in the Old Testament in particular, those first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, especially you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, parts of Exodus, the law. Third, we have the perspective of the prophets, page upon page of the Old Testament, full of these oracles from the prophets, these warnings, encouragements, insights about the future, these calls to do justice, to align our lives with God's character and purposes. So we have storytellers, we have priests, we have prophets, but then we also have this fourth perspective, and that's the perspective of the sage. And what the sage does is layer on top of stories and laws and oracles, observations about life, learning from life experiences. These are writers who have reflected on life and who are saying, in general, this is how it works based on what we have seen. Based on what life has taught us, this is how it works. Now, for some of us, again, this is maybe a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around because we've been taught not to trust life experience. But Scripture itself doesn't do that. Life, the Bible says, is a great teacher, and Proverbs invites us to pay attention to our lives. All of life is a teacher. This is why if you read through the book of Proverbs, it can feel a bit random. You have all these different sayings about money and friends and work and words and justice and marriage and pleasure, and it's all kind of jumbled together because that's what life is like. So even in the way it's written is a reflection of the process of reflecting on our lives and drawing conclusions from that through the lens of the story and the priests, and the prophets. We need to listen to the sage as well as those other perspectives. Now, the sage claims, in the introduction to the book of Proverbs, the sage claims this. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not the only time it says this. This is repeated in a few other places in the book of Proverbs, chapter 2, 8, 9, 16, 19, 23, for example. Also repeated in the Psalms and other places in Scripture. But it's not a phrase that we use very often today. Fear of the Lord seems to cut against the grain of a loving God. Why would we be afraid of our good Father? Why would we be afraid of our buddy, our friend Jesus. What does it mean to fear the Lord? 
There are a couple different angles here I want us to look at this from. A couple years ago in the heyday of the Warriors dynasty, their coach, Steve Kerr, would talk about the need for his team to have a healthy fear, an appropriate fear is the phrase he liked to use, an appropriate fear of their opponents. Even though most of the time when they walked onto that court, they were the more talented team, it's still the NBA, still professional basketball players. You could lose to any of these teams on any given night if you did not give that team enough respect. Appropriate fear. We tend to think of fear as this negative emotion, maybe a sense of terror or dread about something bad that might happen to us. But what Steve Kerr is saying, what the wisdom writers, the sages are saying, fear of the Lord is about respect. Giving the other its due. Acknowledging the power, the otherness, the mysteriousness, the vastness of our God. Fear of the Lord is about respect. Second angle, the fear of the Lord is about humility, which is about truth, right? Humility is this honest assessment of who we are and who God is. It is a recognition of God as creator and us as creature. When we make this sort of honest assessment, it puts us in proper posture, right relationship, to God. We need Him, not the other way around. He loved us first, which allows us to respond to His initiation. God is creator. We are creature. That right perspective, that humble perspective, allows us to live in right relationship with Him. Fear of the Lord is about relationship, not about transaction. Final angle, fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom is about worship. It is awe and wonder at the mystery, the weirdness, the vastness of the universe. It's the hush that falls over 20 knuckleheads when they're standing on the top of Half Dome as the sun comes up. Fear of the Lord, though, Again, relational, also the intimacy that we can have with the God who comes near and asks us, what do you want? The only appropriate response to the God who is powerful, vast, mysterious, and beyond us, and yet at the same time with us and present, this God who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, the only appropriate response is worship is to bow down, not in terror, but to bow down in awe and reverence and wonder. Fear of the Lord, wisdom, begins here, in this place. Respect, humility, worship, giving ourselves over to right relationship with God. Now in the New Testament, a couple of interesting things. That same passage that tells us that God is before all things and in him all things hold together also talks about Jesus as being the, the person in which the fullness of God dwells. This Jesus who reconciles all things to himself, this Jesus who makes peace 
possible, right relationship with God possible through his death on a cross is the full expression of God's wisdom. Listen to these words. For the message of the cross is foolishness. This is wisdom language. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. The wisdom of God most fully on display in the person of Jesus. And so as we gather here in this moment that we call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, we celebrate what appears to be incredibly foolish. The God, the creator of the universe, humbling himself, limiting himself to a human body, taking on flesh and blood, submitting himself to the humiliation of dying on a cross, full display, and yet in this very strange and mysterious way, this is the wisdom and power of God. Because as we see in the story, it's through this death, that resurrection comes, that life comes, that the power of sin and death is defeated. This is the wisdom of God on full display, the broken and bloodied body of Jesus. And so we come to this moment every time we gather to remember what God has done and to acknowledge who he is, where wisdom comes from, and in humility and in respect to worship, to enter that place of fear of the Lord. Again, not cowering in terror, but in awe and wonder at what God has done for us. When you're ready, let's take communion together.